0: When I was about 10 years old, I was uh, driving with my mom. And I don't remember exactly where we were going, but I, I remember that moment pretty vividly. And we were, we were driving along, and, and for some reason, I don't know why, she said, Did you see that, that person on, walking on the side of the road? And I said, Yeah. And she said, Yeah, that, that person in the red shirt. And I said, It wasn't a red shirt, it's a blue shirt. And she said, "No, it's it's red." And I said, "No, it was blue." And of course, we've passed it by now, so we we're arguing over something that we've already seen. And she said, "Did we see the same person?" I'm talking about the person with the dark hair. And I said, "No, it was blonde." She said, "No, dark." And I said, "No, it was blonde, clearly blonde." And she said, "The, the tall person." I said, "No, it was short." And she said, "Kind of kind of heavy set." I said, "No, no, it was very thin." And then, in a, in a kind of a moment of exasperation and, and maybe desperation, she said. So, can we at least agree that it was a man? And I said, no, it was a woman. And it was at that moment that my mom realized that I needed glasses. (laughs) Because it turns out I'm terribly blind. I'm very, very nearsighted. But of course, I didn't know that. I couldn't know that. Because all I could see was what I could see. And how the world looked to me it was what I assumed how it looked to everyone. Because all I could see was what I could see. I couldn't see the world the way that my mom saw the world. I had no idea she could see with such detail and clarity. All I saw were blobs and moving lights at a distance. But I had no idea. Because all I could see was what I could see. And I couldn't see the way that she did. Uh, my, my wife, Carrie, has excellent vision, and this still kind of um, flummoxes her at times because she doesn't understand why I can't see things. And so every once in a while, she'll hold up an object, and she'll say, Hey, d- babe, do you see this? And I'll be like, Wait, I can't quite. And, and, and so she'll bring it really close up, like right in my face, and kind of shake it like, Here it is, this object. And I'm like, Babe, I'm not, I'm not literally blind. Like, I can see the object. I just can't see detail. But she doesn't quite understand it. Because she doesn't see the way that I see. Have you ever wondered how God sees you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how God sees the world? And how he sees people? Because God does not see the world the way that we see the world. I'm convinced that God, when he looks at people, he doesn't see them in the way that we naturally see people. Because when God looks at someone, he sees them with astounding clarity. All the detail, everything filled in. He sees them to their very heart and their very soul. Everything that they try to keep hidden, he sees all of it. Even the things that we wish he didn't. But see, when I look at people at best, I see varying levels of clarity. Some people I know really well, and so I see them more clearly than others, but, but for many it's just sort of blurred, and the best I can do is sort of evaluate people on what little I see of them, some of the words that they use, the decisions that they make, the actions that they take. And then I, from that, I try to guess who they are. But see, when God sees someone, he sees all of them. He sees them through and through. He sees everything about them. In fact, he sees them not only as they are in the present, but he actually sees them in their future, which is kind of how I see my kids. You know, for example, my daughter Eleanor, she's two, and she is a little bundle of joy and exasperation. She is a, a, a warrior princess through and through. And she's a little troublemaker. She can damage and destroy our house far more quickly than our three boys combined. It is astounding what she can do. And I love her. I love seeing that in her. I love her spunk and her energy and her fearlessness. But there's a part of me that that is so glad that she's going to grow up and that she's going to mature because she has some two year old traits that, let's be honest, are not going to translate well to adulthood Uh, throwing your food when you get upset. It's not going to play well when you're 25 and looking for a job. Nor is attacking your brothers with a yardstick. That's happened. Or just randomly screaming as you walk through the house. Can you imagine an employer? You're just walking through the halls and you just start yelling randomly. Like that's not going to translate well when you're 12, much less when you're 25. And so I see Eleanor as she is, but there's a part of me that can imagine who she is becoming. And who God wants her to be, the woman that he has created her to be, and I have the amazing privileges of her dad, as her dad, to walk alongside her and pray that God uses me to help her become who God has always seen her to be. I think this is how God sees each of us. I think he sees us not only as we are and loves us as we are, but he also sees us for our future, for who we could be. And I think that God is actually calling each of us, in fact, to see people like that. To see people the way that he sees people. And in fact, I think it's paramount that if we are going to live the lives that God calls us to live as the church, and if we are to to do the works that God has set out for us to do as the church, that we have to see people the way that God sees people. Because we cannot be the hands and feet of God without also being His eyes. And I think this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at. In this passage we're going to look at, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16. And we're just going to look at three verses, or four. I don't do math. And I wish I had time to unpack the entire passage, because it is amazing, but all we're going to look at is just a few verses and so if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to start at verse 16, and listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He writes this, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Some translations will say worldly perspective. Others will use this word flesh. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And what Paul says here, if, if you read between the lines, he's saying, look, there was a time that you looked at people from this worldly perspective, but not anymore. In fact, he's saying from now on, this is aspirational language, from now on, we're not gonna look at people that way. You once viewed people this way, but not anymore. From now on, we are not gonna see people through this worldly perspective in the same way that we no longer regard Christ that way. So so what is he talking about here? So this idea of, of the worldly perspective or flesh in some translations, if I can sort of put this in my own words, it means this that we once saw Jesus as the world did. And by that, Paul means that we saw Jesus through the lens of our own personal biases and prejudices that have been shaped by the world around us. In other words, we see Jesus in the way that we want to see Jesus, but we don't do that anymore. Now we see Jesus for who he actually is. Have you ever tried to convince someone that they don't actually like Jesus? That might sound strange. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where you you literally found yourself arguing with them? I I know that you think you like Jesus, but you don't actually like Jesus. Has that ever happened to you? See, See, I grew up in the Bible Belt. And then I lived overseas, I lived in Rome, in the heart of Catholicism. And all the time, I would talk to people, strangers, neighbors, people that I worked with, and every time i had a conversation with them every time what i found was that they all like jesus in fact they love jesus wasn't not to love it's jesus and yet the more i would begin to talk with them i would discover that they actually didn't have any idea who jesus was but boy they like jesus and so i found myself actually arguing with them and saying no no actually who you like is you because what you've done is you've made jesus into your own image you've made jesus look like you No wonder you like him. You like you. See, it's much easier to deal with Jesus if we make him look like us, isn't it? Then we have to actually deal with him for who he is. See, we are tempted to see Jesus and to make him into our own image, to make him who we want him to be. But it's not just Jesus. Jesus. In fact, we do that with everyone. We, we want everyone to look like us. Because let's be honest, I mean, the world would be so much better if everyone was like me. And you're thinking, no, if they were like me. Each of us thinks, if, if everyone just looked like me and thought like me and, and acted like me and had the same perspective as me, then, then the world would be a wonderful place. And in fact, we feel this so deeply that when we see other people who aren't enough like us, we actually think there must be something wrong with them. But of course, we can't force people to look like us. They either do or they don't. See, Jesus, I can sort of reimagine and redefine and make him look like me, but, but you, I can't change you. You're there to correct me. And so instead, what, what we do is we, we look for the people like us, and we label them, those are the good people. Like me equals good. And then we look around at everyone else and we sort of raise this antenna and we are are dialed in to every word and to every action, to every opinion and every post to decide whether or not they're enough like me. Whether they're going to be good. And if they aren't, then I write them off because they're not good. And in fact, we, we write them off in order to prove that we're good. This is actually one of the ways that I signal to all of the other people that are good, that I'm good, that I'm with them, that I'm not one of those people, is by dismissing everyone who doesn't measure up to me. You see, we live in a cancel culture. We, we live in a culture where if you don't measure up to who I am, if you're not enough like me, then I will simply cancel you out. I will erase you from my social media feed. As far as my little universe is concerned, you will cease to exist. I will have nothing to do with you. I will not associate with you anymore. And by the way, that's not just out there. That's here in the church. In fact, it's rampant in the church. I've never seen the church more divided than it is now. And it breaks the heart of God. I have a friend a while back who is a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, and he he made the mistake, I thought it was a little naive, but he made the mistake of posting on Facebook something that was somewhat political. And I saw him post it and I saw it and I just thought, oh no, oh no, because the knives came out and you wouldn't believe the posts, you wouldn't believe the feed, The accusations, the little one-liners to prove how right they are and how wrong he was, all punctuated with angry emoji. And afterwards, I, I, I was talking with him, and I said, Man, I saw that post. I knew it was coming. I felt so bad for you. And I said, Who were those people? They were awful. And he said, Oh, those were my Christian friends. And I thought, Dear God, Father, forgive us, because we have become like prowling lions looking for people to devour. And we look far less like your son and we look much more like your enemy. But see, I have to, I have to attack. I have to cancel because I can't afford for anyone to think that I'm associated with those people. After all, I'm a Christian. And Christians don't associate with people like that. Christians don't associate with sinners. I mean, Jesus would never associate with people like that would he? Except that's exactly what he does. And I know this because he associates with people like me and like you. See, no one, no one should be more aware of the grace of God than you and me. No one should be more aware of our sinfulness and our dysfunction and our selfishness No one should be more aware of that than the very people who have been transformed by the grace of God and through the redemptive work of his son on the cross. And yet how quickly we forget. But see, Paul doesn't want us to forget. Verse 17, he writes this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Notice what he says. There was an old you. In case you forgot... There's an old, there's an old but, but he says, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are new. God has done something radically transformative in your life. You are utterly changed. You are not who you used to be. You are new and different. You're a new creation. And God wants you to know that. Fourteen and a half years ago, I became Carrie's husband. I had never been Carrie's husband before. That should seem obvious. And this was a new status for me, it was a huge upgrade. Because I had been her boyfriend and then I was her fiancé, but now, now I was her husband. And for the last 14 and a half years, I've had the privilege of of living in the reality of the wonder of being Carrie's husband. All the wonder comes on her side. But understand that, that if you were to ask Carrie, I hope that if you ask Carrie, okay, Luke, Lucas, when you married him, he became your husband, but now what kind of a husband is he? And hopefully what she would say is, wow, he is so much better at being my husband than he was. Now, he was my husband the whole time, but now he begins to get it. Some of you can relate. Because she would say, well, back in the beginning, when we first got married, yes, he was my husband, but man, he did a lousy job of it in some ways. There were things about him that, that didn't match up at all with who he was as my husband, but now, 14 years later, The way that he respects me, and the way that he loves me, and cares for me, and loves me, now he is far more aligned with living in the reality of who he is as my husband. Hopefully that's what she would say. Don't ask her. I will ask her. I will let you know. (laughs) But how strange would it have been if during this 14 and a half years, if I continued to live like I was single? that even though we were married and I was her husband, and yet I'm still doing all the same things that when I was just single, we probably wouldn't have been married this long. See, God is telling us that you are new, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are new. That is a new status. That is a huge upgrade for you. But some of you don't get it. Some of you are still living like you're in the old, not the new now, there are some of you who get this, some of you who, who, who are living in the reality of the new you, and you know that because you remember the old you. You remember it very clearly, and so you look at your life and you think, man, I see how God has changed me, the work that he's done in my life. I am not who I used to be. Praise God for that. Some of you are a little more confused because you don't really remember the old you, Maybe you've been a believer for a really long time and you don't really remember the old you and so you see the new you and you think that's the old you when actually it's the new you. I'll let you process that for a second. It's sort of like if I was to look in the mirror and say, man, I have not aged a day since I was 20. And then my wife would be like, um, honey, yes, you have, like, look at this picture, you've clearly aged. But see, I don't remember what I looked like when I was 20 so I look in the mirror and think, looking great. See, some of you, some of you, you don't remember what it is to be old, the old you. And so you've been living in the new you, but you don't even see it. And what you need is someone to come alongside you who knows you, who's known you for some time, and who can come alongside and say, actually, God has done unbelievable things in your life. Some of you are are, you're the guilty people, right? You're the people who feel guilty all the time. I haven't really grown, I haven't really changed, God hasn't really done that much in me, and you need someone else to speak truth into your life and say, No, you are a new creation, and I see it, and it's beautiful. I hope you have someone like that in your life. But some of you, you are still living out of the old. You're still living as the old you. You're still making the same old mistakes, and making the same old decisions, and living with the same old regrets. And God wants you to know that you're new. Have you ever had a friend? You think back from high school, and and even today, if you meet up with them, they're still living like it's high school. Like they're just living in the, the glory days. And every time you get with them, it's, it's about the state championship. Or it's about that party that they went to. Or that person that they dated. And they, they just can't seem to live in the present or the future. They're just living in the past. They're stuck in the past. Or maybe you've got that friend. Or maybe you are that friend. Who every time you talk to them, all they can live is the regrets. All the mistakes. That's all they can see. And you sit there and you listen to them. And there's a part of you that just wants to grab them and shake them. And you'll wake up. The past is in the past. Stop living like it's the past. Let it go. But of course you don't. It probably wouldn't do any good. See, God is saying to some of you this morning, wake up. Wake up, I have done a new thing in you. You are a new creation. You are not who you used to be. So stop living under the weight of guilt and shame that I have dealt with. Stop living out of your past disappointments and your past regrets. Stop making the same mistakes over and over again as though you are still the old you. You're not the old you. You are a new creation. And you may not even see it, but God does. And God wants you to see you the way that he sees you. One of my favorite museums is in Rome, Italy. I lived in Rome for a while. And if you go into the Via Borghese, there's a little museum there by the same name. And uh, it's not very touristy. A lot of tourists don't know about it. But I love this museum. It houses some of the greatest sculptures by Bernini. And if you don't know who Bernini is, just imagine the work of Michelangelo and then upgrade. That's blasphemy to some of you, but that's what I think. Bernini was a genius. If you look at one of Bernini's sculptures, it is, it is not stone. It is alive. You can almost see it breathing. Gods and goddesses, mythic figures, and they are so lifelike. It's like they could simply turn and speak to you at any moment. And I used to sit there and I would look up at this statue and I would think, I wonder what this looked like before, before Bernini began to chisel. Like what would this, this exquisite, beautiful statue have looked like before Bernini carved this beauty out of it? Because I'm pretty sure it would have just looked like a big rock to me. I'm pretty sure that most of us would have seen like this big slab of marble and we would have been wholly unimpressed. It is utterly unremarkable. It's just a block of stone, and yet Bernini, when he would look at that piece of rock, he would see something so vividly, with such clarity, that it's like it was already there. And he just needed to chisel it out. Michelangelo actually said something very similarly. They asked him about his creative process and how he created these sculptures, and he said, I I never created a sculpture. It was always there. That he would look at the piece of marble and in a sense ask it, who are you? And how do I get you out? And then he began to chisel. In a way, I think this is how God sees us. That, That where we see just blocks of rock and stone that God sees so vividly and so clearly not just who we are, but who we could be. Who he dreams we could be. Who he has created us to be, who he always intended us to be. And God says, because I see you so clearly, as though you already are that, now I'm going to begin to chisel you out. And of course, we say, stop chiseling, God, because that hurts. It doesn't feel good to be chiseled. But the reason we fight back is because we can't see what God sees. And God says, if you could just see you the way that I see you, you would let me keep chiseling. If you could see you the way that I see you, he would say, chisel more, chisel more, he said, because I am breaking you out of bondage. I am breaking you out of your prison. I am breaking you out of sin and shame, and I'm chiseling off all your rough edges, and I am making you into something unbelievably, breathtakingly beautiful. That's what I want to do for you. That's what I want you to become. If you could just see you the way that I see you. That's what God wants for each of you. That is what God wants for every person. And that is what God wants us to tell everyone. Because this is what Paul says in verse 18. Because if you keep reading, this is what he says. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and listen to this, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Paul said, God wants everybody to know that this is how I see you, and this is how I want to work on you, and this is how I want to call you into the new I want to make you new. I want to put away the old and I want you to live as the new you the way that I see you. And he gives us this message to be his ambassadors to take the world. Have you ever had a job that you thought was pointless? A lot of you are nodding inside because no one's actually expressing any um, emotion whatsoever in here, which is fine. I I will provide it as much as I can. Some of you are thinking, yes, that's my entire job in fact. My job is a waste of time. It is pointless. I don't even know why I do it except for the fact that they pay me, but it's a waste of my life and I wish I could do something else. Some of you though, maybe you've just had that boss who comes to you and says, I'm giving you this project and you just groan inwardly. You've got to be kidding me. Why would you give me this project? Because you know it is a waste of time and money and all of your energy. You know that there's no way that it will work. It will not be successful. And so, why is your boss bringing you this terrible idea? Simple, it's his idea, or her idea. And if you were bolder, you would say that, this is a terrible idea, but of course you say, yes, this is a great idea, I can't wait to get started. And then you do one of two things. Either you grudgingly go along with whatever your boss has given you to do, with as little energy and passion as possible, or or you hope that your boss forgets. Maybe if I just put it off. Maybe if I just don't ever seem to get to it, they'll just move on to something else and we can we can deal with that, but I don't have to waste my time on this pointless endeavor that will never work. I think that some of us read these verses and we think that God is that kind of boss. I think we read these verses and we think this is a fool's errand. This will never work. Why is God trying to waste my time? Because we've seen those people. I, God, I don't know if you know those people, but I see those people, and there is no way this is going to work. Sure, I will go, and I will tell them about you, but nothing will ever come of it. In fact, I'd rather just put it off and hope that it goes away. Because, God, have you seen them? Have you seen how they are? Have you seen how they live? Have you seen the decisions that they make? God, there is no way. Those people will never be reconciled to you. They want nothing to do with you. They will never be made new. They will never accept you. To which God says, are you kidding me? Seriously, are you kidding me? Do you think for a moment that all the sins of the world can overwhelm my grace and yet you think one person, oh, that was too much. Do you think that my love can ever be defeated? Do you think my love can ever fail? Do you think my love ever runs out? Because last time I checked, my grace and my love was sufficient for you. What makes you so special? See, I found you, God says, when you were my enemy, when you hated me, when you were lost and broken in your sin, when no one would have had anything to do with you if they actually knew you, but I didn't give up on you. And I made you new. And that's what I want to do for them. See, where you see only blocks of rock, utterly unremarkable, nothing there to see, God says, I see immortals. I see little g, gods and goddesses. I see people whom I love. People for whom my son gave his life. People for whom I have such dreams. If you could only imagine. Dreams for extraordinary lives lived with meaning and purpose if they only knew. If they only knew. And God says, I want you to tell them. Can I ask you a really uncomfortable question? You have no choice. Who have you given up on? Who have you written off? Who have you canceled? And said, you don't exist as far as I'm concerned. Who have you written off as a lost cause? Maybe it's you. Maybe you think that God can't do anything to change your life because you just keep living in the past and you're carrying around all of the The regrets and the disappointments and you keep making the same bad decisions and you're carrying around all the ghosts of Christmas past and God to you wants to say, step into the newness of life. You are a new creation. Live as the new you. Some of you, it's you. For others of you, maybe it's a friend or a former friend. Maybe it's a spouse or an ex-spouse. Maybe it's a child or a parent or a grandparent. I don't know who it is for you but who is it that you've given up on? And you no longer pray for them. You try not to think about them. Because as far as you're concerned, they are a block of stone and nothing will ever change. And God says, I want you to see them the way that I see them. Not just as they presently are. Not just as they are right now, but who I have created them to be. Who they could be if only, if only they knew. Can you imagine that person just for a moment? Maybe some of you have someone in mind. Can you imagine what they could become if God simply got a hold of them? Can you imagine how God would change their life and use them in this world for his glory if God simply got a hold of them and he made them new? Can you imagine what that would look like if only they knew? See, this is our great task. This is our great privilege to come alongside people who the world dismisses, who if we saw simply as they are, we would forget and we would cancel. But to see people as God sees them and then to tell them, this is how God sees you. He's not holding your sins against you. In fact, God doesn't, he's not concerned with your past sins. In fact, all he wants to do is to chisel you out to make you into something new and beautiful who you were always created to be. That all of your past sins and all of your past failures and all of your past disappointments, they are covered by the blood of Jesus. And all that's left is new. That's God's message. And that's our mission. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And if you're a believer in Christ, when we, we come to this table, what we are doing is we are remembering and we're celebrating the fact that God did not give up on us. That we were when we were in the mud and the mire, he pulled us up out of the pit. And that Jesus saw us when we were in our darkest place and he said, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to write them off. I'm not going to cancel them. Instead, I'm going to come and I'm going to die for them so that they can be made new. That's what we remember here. If you would please stand. We're going to uh, read together the Apostles' Creed. If you would please read along with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body,